All right, so we have a, an intense pas- uh, passage before us uh, today. It talks about suffering, talks about the nature of the Word of God. I was looking on my, in, in my library or my office, I got a bunch of shelves with a lot of books. And one of those books is on the doctrine of the Word of God, and it's like this big. It's just that one. And this is much of the passage that it goes back and forth from. So what I'm going to try and do in the next 30 minutes or so is skip a stone across an ocean. So bear with me, and let's ask the Lord for some help. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, I, I thank you that you have charged us as followers of you to remain faithful to endure on until the end, until you come back or we go to you. But God, we need help. Lord, uh, Paul maps out in this text how you help us, what you have sent into our lives. And Lord, I just pray that you would make our hearts diligent, help us to understand, and help us to be convicted where conviction is needed so that we may be transformed into the image of your Son. Lord, we love you, and we need your help this morning. I pray that my words will glorify you, O God, for you are worthy of those. It's in your son's Jesus' name. We pray and agree. Amen. One of my favorite questions to ask other believers when we uh, hang out, because, you know, pastors go and do coffee a lot, or my favorite spot on Friday is El Taco Jalisco's in North Colleen off Rancier. So if you're a man in our church and you've been out to lunch with me, you know we've been there, right? Yes and amen. But one of my favorite questions to ask in those times is, hey, tell me about the person or the people who discipled you, who poured into you, in your faith and in your family. And you know what happens when people start to talk? Man, you you just see the delight rise up out of their chest as they begin to recall the lessons that they learned, the skills they acquired, the valuable relationships that they experienced. And as that delight begins to come to its head and and they begin to end that conversation, almost always this phrase is used or a form of this phrase is used at the end of their statements. And that is, that person or those people had a profound influence and effect on my life. When I think back on those who have discipled me, invested in me, that same um, note is true of me as well. I mean, just to go down memory lane with you guys for a minute, I remember David Burkett, this full-time firefighter in Waco, whose side gig was being a pastor. And he grabbed a hold of me, and he invested in me, and he taught me how to read God's word and apply it to my everyday life. I think about Pastor Daryl Beggs, the senior pastor over at Central Baptist Church in Hillsboro, Texas. If you've never heard of that place, it's because it's real small. Where Daryl Beggs showed me the importance of caring for the whole flock of God as he invited me to come with him to visit widows and people sick in the hospitals. I remember Dave McMurray, the senior pastor at Grace Bible Church, who taught me to study the character of God. I can think of the countless professors who have invested in me, who have taught me how to simplify deep truths so that they can be helpful to those who are in need. And I think of Pastor Stephen of our church, who has taught me how to lead with humility. 
all of these men in the history of my life have had a profound influence and effect on me. Because each of them, who I would say have discipled me, has not only imparted to me biblical truth, but also their biblical convictions. I think when we, we often talk about discipleship, we think of it almost as uh, one believer imparting the facts of the faith to another believer. Almost kind of like, here's your welcome packet for being a Christian, right? And, and that is true to some degree. We need those things. We need right orthodoxy. But discipleship isn't just that. We also impart our biblical convictions to one another. Those men that I just talked about in my life, they imparted a lot of truth to me. But they also imparted their biblical convictions to me. David, the firefighter, imparted to me that the scriptures were sufficient for all of my life. And I watched my marriage become transformed from that reality. Daryl Beggs imparted me into me not just the skill of what to do when you visit someone in the hospital but the conviction of why pastors must go to the flock and not wait for them to come to you that's a biblical conviction Stephen imparted to me not that just you need to be humble but he illustrated that conviction as I have watched him over the last almost 10 years now lead and wrestle personally with that what a biblical conviction to be imparted with and in our text this morning Paul maps out a course for us really answering ultimately the age-old question of how do we remain faithful if we are in Christ how do we stay in Christ how do we remain faithful now one is a biblical truth that hey nothing can snatch you out of my hand right who the father has given me I will hold secure but we can sure drift, can't we? How do we remain faithful? How do we do it? How do we remain faithful when we suffer? How do we remain faithful when we endure emotional distress? How do we remain faithful when things are going pretty good in life? How do we remain faithful? And the course that Paul maps is really one that has one central imperative, and an imperative just means something we must do as Christians that we find in the Bible, but it's grounded in two expressions of that imperative. The central imperative is found in verse 14, and it says, continue, continue on, continue in. But it's grounded in continuing in biblical convictions and biblical truth. So from this, what we learn from Paul is that he charged Timothy with continuing in biblical conviction, biblical truth at the end of his life. This is his swan song, his last letter. This is what he tells his dear friend who he discipled, Timothy. Continue in these two things. You want to remain faithful, continue in these things, which are ultimately two key components of discipleship. It's how we disciple others, and it's how we remember the discipleship we received from a faithful friend. So look with me first at verses 10 through 13 as we talk about and see that we must continue in biblical convictions. Here's what it says. But you, everybody say, but you. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the 
uh, persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And yet, the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hmm. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. The first two words we see in verse 10 are the words, but you. What this tells us is that Paul is now contrasting himself and Timothy with what was previously discussed. So last week, Pastor Stephen opened up God's word and preached from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, where he talked about the subject matter of the trouble with troublemakers. Y'all remember that? The trouble with troublemakers. I hated that title just for grammatical purposes, uh, but... It conveyed a great point. And in that, those verses, we learn that those troublemakers who were in the church were assigned 18 characteristics of unfaithfulness. 18 characteristics of unfaithfulness. Now, when we preach, just so you know, we often take bites out of a natural flow of logic because otherwise we'd be up here for like 10 hours and I need a nap on Sunday, you know? But what we need to know is that Paul is building an argument and he's exposing a clear distinction between two categories of people in the church. One category he will call an imposter who commits to deception and pleasure seeking. That's what we see here in verse 13 and verses 1 through 9. And another category of person in the church who is one who commits to faithfulness. They are not imposters. So what is Paul telling Timothy and ultimately us? I think he's telling us to remember to continue in the biblical convictions that we have been discipled in. That's why he says, but you have followed my, and then gives a list. These are convictions. You know, when I was a kid, I used to get into a lot of trouble, as you might have guessed, if you've known me longer than three seconds. And my parents... And in our home, we had these values growing up. We had a purpose as a family. Like the Grogans were a certain kind of people. And when I would get in trouble, I remember my father, my mother, they would pull me aside and they would remind me of who we were, who I am, who I was, and what convictions we held to as a family. So for instance, if I was being lazy, which never happened, my dad would pull me aside and he would say, son, we are a people who work hard unto the Lord. He conveyed that biblical conviction. If I were being ugly to my sister, which never happened, um, I would be reminded by my mom that we've, we are a people who value being kind and helpful to those who are in need, not ugly. That was a biblical conviction. I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's reminding Timothy of the biblical convictions that we must continue in. Because verse 13 says, evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's only going to get worse with those folks. And sometimes, friends, you may even find yourself being the lone wolf who's remaining faithful. 
like in the workplace, for instance. Like, it's you. <laughs> I remember my first deployment. There were no other Christians <laughs> in my section. It was me. Now, I made a decision to be like them when I should have made a decision to be like Christ. At that point in my life. The same question we face all the time as we stand distinct and separate from the rest of the world as followers of Jesus Christ. We may be the lone wolf remaining faithful, but even so, Paul says to Timothy, this may happen to you. It's only going to get worse, but follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance. Even follow my persecutions. You see, Timothy had learned from Paul how Paul conducted himself in difficult circumstances, how what Paul's purpose was as he lived on mission for the name of Jesus Christ, how Paul related to others despite circumstance or that difficult mission. Timothy knew Paul's convictions because he had followed and learned from him. For instance, did you know that Timothy had a significant part in no fewer than six of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches. Like Timothy spent some real time with Paul, learning. And at this point, this swan song, this final letter to a faithful friend, Timothy's been set up with success. And what I mean when I say success is I mean remaining faithful, endurance, is success in the Christian life. That we will walk in faithfulness for a prolonged period of time until we see Christ face to face. That's what success looks like. Now, there are times when we fail along that road, but for Christians, we repent. We forsake the sin. We, we take another step towards Christ. Now, I think about an illustration I heard some other pastor, so it's not mine but no plagiarism here. I don't remember who did it, but I remember him describing this idea of moving towards Christ over the course of your life. He said, it's kind of like when you're, uh, you have your little baby, right? The parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about. When, you're, when your little baby's starting to take their first steps, y'all remember that? And you put them up on the couch and they're holding on, they got those big old heads and they're all swingy. And you go over here, right? And you're like, hey, come to Papa, right? Or Mama, and the baby lets go. And one or two things happens. That big head takes them forward and they can eat the carpet or they can take a step. And they take those little couple steps and then they fall. What's our response to the baby when it falls? It's not get up. Sweet, dumb child of mine. We walk in this family. No, it's like, like, I'm not going to yell because I'll blow out the speakers, but like, we're excited, right? You took two steps. Amazing. And then what do we do? We put them back at the couch. And we go, All right, come now. Come to me. Three steps, four steps, five steps. Then they walk and then they start to run. They run so fast, they run out from under their feet. And then you set them back up and you're like, slow down, bud. No, I think that's what our Heavenly Father does. He says, come to me. Remain faithful. Take steps. You fall, he doesn't say, get up, stupid. We walk in this family. He picks us up, and he says, come to me again. Come to me again. Take four steps, five steps. Run to me. 
That's endurance. That's what happens over the course of our lives. Timothy has been set up for success. He has the tools he needs to stay the course. Because we see in verse 12 this very difficult promise that was not just put here for Timothy to claim, but for us as well. Look at verse 12. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Stop. Is that us? All who wish or want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? All right. Stand by. Comma. Will be persecuted. (laughs) Often when we think of promises, we simply think of what I like to call kumbaya promises, right? Promises that make me smile, feel really good. But sometimes in the scriptures, we have difficult promises. And this is one of those. A promise that cultivates an expectation that's based in reality. That's what we see here in the text. This promise helps to shape our expectation of what will happen when we remain faithful. You might be like, hey, pastor, so you're saying if I continue to remain faithful, continue to look like Christ, to grow in godliness, right? Then you're saying to me, I'm going to suffer for my faith. It's not just generally going to go super well. That's what I'm saying. That's hard, but it's true. I think Paul argues that we who wish to live a godly life, which is what Jesus himself called us to, then we can expect persecution. So imagine Timothy sitting by the fire in his house in Ephesus. He's got this letter from a dear friend from Paul, and he's reading it. And like Paul's saying, hey, remember what I've imparted to you. Continue in these biblical convictions, um, but expect that if you remain faithful, which is what Christ called you to, which is what I hope for you, you will undergo persecution for it. Close letter, right? <laughs> like, how do you like your toast? A little bit burnt? <laughs> Church, what I need to say to you is that God has put you on this earth and called you to bring him glory by remaining faithful. Continuing in the biblical convictions We have received from other faithful men and women of God. Holding fast to those convictions ultimately will help us to navigate difficult circumstances and seasons of life. And when you navigate those faithfully, you will undergo persecution to a degree. That's tough, but it's true. Now, when I say the word persecution, I know some of you are thinking martyrdom. Straight up, right? Worst case scenario. (laughs) But I think that there are a thousand different cuts of persecution that believers undergo over the course of their lives trying to remain faithful. But those thousand cuts, what they do is they prepare us and equip us for what may be asked of us at some point. I got a case study for you. Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian who lived during the time of World War II. And on April 9th, 1945, after he, had, uh, he was killed, he was hung by the Nazi party for conspiring against Hitler, which really looked like trying to remain faithful. 
And he gave his life for the name of Jesus Christ. He was martyred. After studying Bonhoeffer over the years, I think I can make this argument that preceding his death was a lengthy testing and preparation period of light persecution. Like small little risky acts of obedience that would eventually grow into a larger core of proven character and grounding real footholds in the gospel's eternal hope. And that's what it's about. Remaining faithful really looks like a lot of small, risky acts of obedience over the course of your life. doesn't mean tomorrow you're going to get fired from your job. But it means your character is beginning to take shape. For if they call your head and lay you off because of your faith, you're ready for it. Because you've done the work. You've remained faithful up to that point. What is the gospel's eternal hope? I like Romans 8, 9 through 11, which says this, You, Christ Community Church, followers of Jesus, I added that part. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Jesus's. And if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through the spirit who lives in you. Why was Bonhoeffer able to stand in the gallows and be hung? Because the Spirit of God indwelled him and he had confidence that he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwelled in him too and would raise him up from the dead. Boldness, faithfulness. How did he get there? Small risky acts of obedience that led him to that moment. And the same is true for us. That is the eternal hope of the gospel that the crown of life has been placed upon your head not because of you, but because of Christ. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have covered us completely. And the Spirit of God guarantees our eternal hope and glory. So my question for you this morning is, what do you wish for? Do you wish to live a godly life? If you do, recount those biblical convictions that you have received from others and let them shape your continued godliness. If you want to remain faithful, continue in those convictions, but also continue in biblical truth. Look with me at verses 14 through 17. It says this, But as for you, continue in. See the imperative? Continue in. What you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures. Which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God or woman would be made complete lacking nothing. 
equipped for every good work. Verse 13, look back at it. It says, evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. You see that? This serves as almost a transition to this next section we just read. Kind of like, hey, Timothy, if those imposters are only getting worse, then you must continue in the word. If we want to remain faithful, we must continue in the word of God. Because God's word does something supernatural in us. If we think back to verses 1 through 9, or really, I guess, 2, 3, 4, 5, <laughs> 2 through 5, if we think back to those 18 characteristics of troublemakers, and we found them, right? We cornered them in the street, and we said, how'd you end up being a troublemaker? Like, what was the first domino that fell before you were boastful and proud, demeaning, disobedient to your parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, a traitor, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but denying its power? How'd you end up there? What was the first domino that fell? I think I would bet money. Here's a Baptist preacher talking about gambling. Um, I would bet money that each one of them first abandoned the word of God and then pursued their flesh, which led to trouble. Whereas Psalm 107, 10 through 11 says, some sat in darkness, others in gloom, prisoners in cruel chains because they rebelled against God's commands. And they despise the counsel of the Most High. Where do we learn of God's commands, church? The Bible. Where do we learn of the counsel of the Most High? You can talk, y'all. Go ahead. One more time. The Bible. Yes and amen. The Bible, of course. And then in the next three verses, 14 through 17, Paul steps up to the diving board of the doctrine of the word of God and like an Olympian diver, dive straight down. Like we could probably preach seven sermons on these three verses and not even scratch the surface. So in the remainder of our time, seven minutes, we're going to do our darndest to do it. Because if we want to remain faithful, we must understand the nature of the word of God and why Paul exhorts us to continue in it. And the way Paul breaks it down, which I have found personally helpful, is really breaks the word into three categories, right? He, first, the origin of the scriptures matters. Second, the utility of the scriptures. And third, the necessity of the scriptures for personal faithfulness. So first, starting uh, with the origin, in verse 16, go ahead and look at it. It says, all scripture is inspired by God. Everybody say all. All of it. Paul is not distinguishing some parts of the Bible versus others, which is a common argument made by liberal biblical scholars. It's not what Paul's doing here. He's not creating a, distinguish, a, a distinction with other parts of the Bible, but rather is communicating that the totality of the Scriptures, this thing, is unique. From every other type of writing that has ever been written and will ever be written. Why? What makes it unique? Its source. Its origin. 
Paul uses the Greek word theopneustos to describe this reality, which is really just two words slammed together. That's what the Greeks like to do. First part of the word is theos, right? Theo, which means God. The second part of the word is neustos, which means breathe. Slam them together, church. God. One more time. God. All right. Greek class is ended. We are good to go. You slap those two words together, we get God breathe. And so when we consider origin, God breathed is a better translation than inspired because his breath comes from him. The breath is traced to the source who is God. And Paul is describing this reality that the Bible's origin comes from no one else, no one else's breath. It comes from God. And if we want to remain faithful, dear Christian, we need the very oxygen of God's breath breathed into our lungs. But not only does God's word just simply come from him, it has great utility. It's, the text says profitable. It teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, it trains us in righteousness. When I think about the human heart or soul I consider it to contain three key elements. I think this is what the Bible is emphatically teaching across the New Testament. That the heart or the soul has three key parts, if you will. The central control center of the human has three key parts. Our beliefs, our desires, and our will or behaviors. And as a sinful man, our souls have been marred by sin. Y'all understand this? And so our beliefs, our desires, and our behaviors have been distorted. What was pure has become wicked because of sin. We have distorted our beliefs. We think things are true when they are actually lies, according to the word. You hear it in our culture today all the time. Well, my truth is, or that's your truth, not my truth. What? Based on what? A fleeting experience doesn't make something true. And we'll hold fast to lies. Our beliefs are corrupted. We desire or lust, where that word comes from, after things because of sin that are impure and no longer pure. And we will sin in order to attain that we desired, which was rooted in what we believed that thing would actually give us. That's how it breaks out, breaks down. So Paul, when talking about God's word, communicates that it, empowered by the spirit, transforms your heart. All of it. If we believe lies about the world around us, about ourselves, about God, it is God's word that teaches us right belief. If we have a desire for impurity, it is God's word that rebukes us. Which just means you need to repent, you're in sin. <laughs> and then corrects us, shows us what is righteous in our desires. It rebukes and corrects. If we are willfully sinning in our behaviors, it is God's word that trains us in righteousness. Like a parent teaches a child right and wrong. And their way changes because of it. Or it teaches us good works. The Bible's origin is God and its utility transforms our hearts and ultimately our lives. The last category of the word that Paul maps out for us 
is the Bible's necessity for our personal faithfulness. Look at verse 17. It says, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Here we learn of the outcome of the scripture's effects on our lives. For Timothy, it's almost as if Paul is saying, if you continue in biblical truth, son, you will be able to rise and meet whatever challenge presents itself. Christ Community Church, if you continue in biblical truth, you will be able to rise and meet whatever challenge presents itself. Because the Lord loves you and has breathed direction out for you. Friends, this is so true for us to cling to. I know that y'all in this room have faced countless difficulties in your lives. I have mourned with many of you. I have faced countless difficulties in my life, and many of you have mourned with me and prayed for me. We are a room full of sinful people who have been sinned against, who have sinned against others, and who are experiencing the sheer brokenness of the world caused by sin. So who can deal with sin? Christ Jesus. That's what makes a Christian different from the rest of the world. It is that Christ's blood was shed for us. What breaks us, what's disconcerting to us, that weighs us down like it's crushing is sin. But the one who frees us is Christ. In Psalm 107, 10 through 11, it says, Some sat in darkness, others in gloom, prisoners in cruel chains, because they rebelled against the commands of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. And then it says, And then he broke their spirits with hard labor, and there was no one there to help. Who did that God? And then, the text says, They cried out to the Lord in their distress. And he broke their chains apart. He broke, broke down the bronze gate and cut through the iron bars. That's what Christ does. He frees us up from the pit, from the prison that sin puts us in. And you and I are to hope in him alone. That is our eternal hope. It does not change. He will continue to do what he does. But you and I have been called by the creator of the universe to live a life pleasing to our Lord. And the only way that we will remain faithful to the end is by continuing in these biblical convictions that were imparted to us and continuing in biblical truth that was imparted to us by God himself. So I want to encourage two actions, two actionable items for you this Sunday. Number one, I want you to recount the biblical convictions that, that those who discipled you gave you. So for instance, if you're struggling in your marriage, what were the biblical convictions you received from those who endured in their marriage faithfully? That's what David did for me. My marriage changed because he shared those convictions with me. 
If you're struggling with parenting, what biblical convictions and examples for parenting have you gleaned from those who endured faithfully? Continue in them. And you can do that for every category of your life. From new birth to death, from work to rest. What have been the biblical convictions that have been given to me by faithful followers of Jesus? And continue in them. The second action I want to encourage is very simple. Read your Bible. Amen? Read your Bible. You might be sitting here and go like, that's it, Pastor Neil? I got that. I got my little plan in here. I check my box. Yeah, baby. All right, I'll one-up myself. More than read your Bible. You ready? Read your Bible and think about how it speaks to your beliefs, your desires, and your actions. Read it for transformation. Let it shape you and make you complete. That's its effect on us. Don't just read it to check a box. Read it to be transformed. So church, how do we remain faithful? We continue in biblical convictions and biblical truth. Let's stand and pray.